Is there a baby in your life who's about to start solid foods? This can be such a confusing and stressful time. As a mom of seven, I really struggled with spoon feeding my oldest baby. But once I realized that babies can safely feed themselves real wholesome foods using the principles of baby-led weaning, feeding the rest of my babies became an actually enjoyable experience instead of something that I used to dread. Hi, I'm Katie Ferraro, college nutrition professor and dietitian specializing in baby-led weaning, and I host the Baby-Led Weaning Made Easy podcast. Each week, we cover evidence-based, safe infant feeding practices for parents and caregivers of babies who are 6 to 12 months of age. So... If you're confused by all the conflicting info you hear about starting solid foods or you want easy, actionable tips on how to safely prep food for your baby or introduce allergenic foods or figure out when to drop a milk feed, we cover all that and more, plus interviews with the world's leading feeding experts in two new episodes each week. Search Baby Led Weaning wherever you listen to podcasts and happy feeding. Hello there, friends. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 94, and today we're talking about bulletproofing your patient. So a while back, you might remember that I did a whole episode about bulletproofing your medication administration. Now we're talking about bulletproofing your patient. So before we get into that, let's take a quick moment to do our listener shout out. And this one is from Carito. I hope I'm saying your name right, who wrote this in response to the podcast episodes. I knew I stumbled onto the right podcast when I saw that the name of the first episode was Emergency or Not. I love the quizzes. They make me think. Thanks, Nurse Mo. Thank you, Carito, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to rate and review the podcast. I really appreciate that. And yes, Emergency or Not is still one of my absolute favorite episodes of all time and what got this podcast going. So thank you so much for saying that you enjoyed it and that you went back that far. That makes me feel very happy and very appreciated indeed. So thank you so much. Okay, so today you guys, we're talking about bulletproofing your patient. And I used to call this idiot-proofing your patient because I thought, even if I'm having a total idiot moment, if everything is as it should be in my room, I have a very less chance of making an error or putting my patient at risk in any kind of safety way. Well, I decided that even calling myself an idiot was not very nice. So I've changed that to bulletproofing the patient. So what we're going to be talking about here is... Setting up your room, setting up your patient, your lines, your everything happening in that room so that not only are you less likely to make errors, but somebody coming into the room to assist you with something would be able to kind of figure things out. Like maybe you're at lunch and someone's giving you break relief and they need to come in and do a few things. You don't want them... Um, making any kind of errors, if at all possible. And the way you set up things in your room can really help with that. So we'll talk about that and you'll see what I mean in just a moment. So one of the most useful, useful skills that you will utilize as an RN, in my opinion, is that of organization and being a very organized nurse. So 
if assessment is your biggest skill of them all, then organization, I would say, is in second-ish place. So having your patient, having your room, having your paperwork, having your supplies, having everything organized and orderly is much, much safer and uh, a very much more pleasant environment for the patient, but it's much safer place to be in than in a room that is a chaotic mess. So one of those things, like I said, that I like to do with my patients is just bulletproof them as early in my shift as I possibly can. It probably won't happen right away because I do have other priorities. I work, um, right now I work in the recovery room. That's my main hub, but I do still work in the ICU sometimes. And when you're taking care of a patient that's critical like that, obviously you're going to address their needs, their emergent needs first. And then when you've got yourself kind of caught up, you can devote some time to what I call bulletproofing the patient. So this again, um, even though I used to call it idiot proofing, has nothing to do with the intellectual capacity of any of my coworkers. It has more to do with the fact that if I make things so organized and so well set up in here that anybody could walk in and kind of get a lay of the land, then I've done a really good job at keeping my patient safe. So one of the first things that you're going to do to bulletproof your patient is early, early in the shift. And I like to do this with that first assessment. And that's what I call a room safety check. So that's just your basics. You want to make sure that your suction works, that your suction tubing is present, that you've got a yank hour present and a canister ready to go. When you need suction for your patient, it's one of those things that when you need it, you needed it like 10 seconds ago. So you want to make sure that it's quick and easy to get going. It's kind of like oxygen in that way. When you need oxygen for your patient, you already needed it. You just you've got to hustle and get it together. So making sure that your suction is working and you have the pieces and the components there that you need for your patient. Because if they're like, say they're vomiting copious amounts of blood and they're a high risk for getting that in their airway, you need to quickly get that out. Or if they're vomiting, or something like that. The other thing that I will do with my room safety check is make sure that the oxygen works as well. You're going to turn the dials. You're going to listen for air um, or oxygen coming out of the flow. You will also need to make sure that you've got those Christmas tree connectors. They're called nipple nut connectors or something. They have a really funny name, but everybody just calls them a Christmas tree because they're kind of shaped like a Christmas tree. And in some facilities, they are green. So they really look like a Christmas tree. So you want to make sure that you have one of those on your oxygen because that's what is the adapter for the tubing. So if you don't have a Christmas tree, you can't hook up your tubing to your oxygen and you might as well not have any oxygen. So make sure that your oxygen is working. And you've got the adapter piece. Um, the other thing with my room safety check is I want to make note of where the CPR button is because it might be different in every room. So make sure you know where it is. Don't test it, but make sure you know where it is and that you can get to it. If you're in an environment with a cluttered room or a really sick ICU patient with a lot of equipment and stuff, it can be a challenge, especially if the CPR button is at the head of the bed to actually get to the head of the bed to the wall there to push it. So make sure that you kind of know, okay, if I have an issue, I know how I'm going to get to that um, C, uh, code button. And then the other room safety check that I like to do before I um, leave the room for um, 
after that first initial assessment I do on my patient is I want to make sure I know how the bed works and where the CPR lever is on that bed. So all the beds should have a CPR lever that you can pull or press or whatever, and that will put the bed into a flat position and in some cases make the mattress firmer so that you can do CPR on your patient quickly. So knowing where that is is also really helpful. So those are just some basic things that you can do first thing with your room safety check. And then with that, if your patient has like a chest tube, for example, there's certain safety equipment that comes with um, a patient that has a chest tube and you want to make sure that you have that at the bedside. At my facility, it's um, hemostats, the ones without the grippy teeth, and um, occlusive dressing. I also include sterile water because that's how I learned it in nursing school, just in case you need to recreate that water seal. So if you don't know what I'm talking about because you haven't learned anything about chest tubes, that's okay. I do have a blog post somewhere about chest tubes. If you search for chest tubes, it will come up. Okay, so and then, you know, with your patient with a tracheostomy, do you have the... uh, spare trach at the bedside like you should have? Do you have um, an Ambu bag for your patients that are in the ICU or on a ventilator? Um, A lot of times on the floors, you might not have an Ambu bag in every room, but it'll be close by. Make sure you know where it is. Typically, it might be out in the hallway in between every two rooms. Um, And that's just a cost-saving measure because they don't use them that often in those environments. And it's, you know, you don't want to be throwing them away if they're not being used. So make sure that you know how those things work. One tip I will give you about your Ambu bag or your BVM is if someone has thrown it in a plastic bag, and it's that type of plastic bag where it has the drawstrings at the top and those drawstrings are cinched tight, and you need that BVM, again, it's one of those things where if you need it now, you probably needed it 10 or 20 seconds ago. So if it's in that bag and the drawstrings pulled, in a tense moment, you're going to feel like you've got 18 thumbs and not enough hands to get that thing out. So I would get things set up so that they're easy to retrieve. Um, The other thing that's super annoying, um, let's say you need, uh, your patient has a a simple face mask or an oxy mask or a non-rebreather at the bedside. Maybe they've been like off and on more advanced oxygen support than maybe the nasal cannula that they have right now because they desat unexpectedly or whatever. Well, a lot of times people will hang those masks off the oxygen um, uh, level indicator where you dial in your oxygen and they get hopelessly tangled up in the tubing and the strap. So just make sure all of that stuff is easily retrievable so that when you need it, you're not fighting with something ridiculous like uh strap on a face mask in order to retrieve it for your patient. So anyway, so checking your room for that basic safety equipment and that things are working is key. Okay, so that's like the first most basic thing. And then another thing that I would recommend is just the overall organized state of the room. Is it full of extraneous 
stuff that you don't need. I love getting rid of stuff in a room. So if you don't need it and you're not using it anymore, get rid of it. Usually you can't return things to central supply or the equipment room or the, not the equipment room, equipment room, you're going to clean things off and return it. The supply room. Once it's in the room, it lives there. Um, So don't throw things out that you could use in the future, but maybe you can put them away in a drawer or something. Um, But if it's not, if it's something you're not using anymore, get rid of it. Um, Less clutter is better. So organizing your room, you would be shocked. You will go into a room after you get rapport and there's like food trays and wrappers from syringes and old IV bags. I mean, it's just a mess. So get that stuff all squared away. Make your room tidy, okay? So that you can think clearly, you know where everything is. And if there is a situation, you've got like space and the mental clarity to work. So I always say an organized room is a safe room. So that's another key thing you can do to bulletproof your patient. Um, The other thing that I would make sure of is... Um, setting bed alarms for your patient is really helpful if they are not going to remember to call for help if they want to get up. We like to be there when patients get up because it does reduce fall risk. We don't want them just lying in bed all the time because immobility has a whole host of problems, but we also don't necessarily want them getting up with that help, mainly because they could be more unsteady on their feet than they anticipate. They could be taking medications that might make them a little woozy or make their blood pressure low. You know, maybe their um, blood pressure pill makes them have orthostatic hypotension and you don't want them just hopping out of bed to go to the bathroom. Whatever it is, um, If the patient's awake and alert and oriented and and you can instruct them, please use the call light. Call for help when you want to get up just so we can be here to make sure you're steady. They're going to do that. But the patient who's confused is probably not. So you want to be able to set bed alarms that will alert you to the patient um, trying to get out of bed. So there's different levels of bed alarm. There's like an exit alarm. There's an alarm that goes off if they just like make a move to get out of bed. Like if they just sit up, it'll go off. The exit alarm is more like if they actually do get off the bed. So depending on what your patient needs and how vigilant you need to be, setting bed alarms is really great for um, just alerting the nurse to the fact that, oh, that patient's getting up. I need to go help them to get to the bathroom. So use your bed alarms appropriately and on the right patients to help just decrease the chance that they could have a fall. And the other thing that you can do to help decrease your patient patient's chance of falling is simply keeping their bed in that low position. So you want to make sure it's as low as it can go. Keep their call light where they can reach it and have their bed table where they can reach it. So, you know, they can reach their things, their glasses or their water or whatever. So just simple things like that. You'd be surprised at how easily they get overlooked, making sure the urinal is where they can reach it. Keeping things convenient for your patient helps keep them safe is another way to bulletproof them. Okay, if you are using restraints on your patient and that restraint is kind of loose, and you walk away and they pull out their ET tube. Um, That's not good. (laughs) So a lot of times intubated patients will be restrained because they're confused and there's this thing in their throat and they wake up a little bit and they don't know where they are. And it's just instinctual to reach for that thing and pull it out. So a lot of times these patients will be restrained 
So you want to make sure that your restraints are on um, appropriately for your patient um, so that they don't um, they're not loosen up. And you'd be surprised at um, how creative patients will get when they're trying to get that ET tube out. Like if their hands are attached at the side of the bed, they'll scooch themselves down and then they'll kind of bend over and they can get tubes out. I mean, having restraints does not mean your patient cannot self-extubate, but it does lower the incidence of that. So if they are restrained, I mean, I've seen a patient right in front of me. I would... No, I won't tell you the details because I don't want to invade anybody's privacy, but um, was restrained, uh, but not tight enough. And right in front of the nurse just reached up and pulled out their ET tube. Um, so you just have to be like hyper vigilant of things like that. So making sure that your restraints are on safely, obviously not too tight, but that they're also um pulled to a level where the patient can't actually reach up and pull anything out because that's the whole point of the restraint most likely in the first place. So um, another thing that you can do when you're bulletproofing your patient, one of the things that I really like to do is label my lines. So um, you're going to have medications or IV fluids hanging, most likely, not always. I mean, if your patient's not uh, super sick, maybe they're just getting over a simple surgery, they may not have any of this stuff. But let's say they do, and you've got things hanging and running into the patient. So what I like to do is look at what's actually hanging, check the MAR, make sure what's hanging is supposed to be hanging, and then that it, trace it down, trace it from what's hanging up on the IV pole, trace it down to the pump and make sure that that medication is going into the right channel in the pump and that the pump channel is programmed with that med. Um, it would be awful to have a different med programmed in and the medication going in at the wrong rate. Um, for something that could harm the patient. So just make sure the right med is hanging, it's programmed correctly, and then trace that line to the patient and make sure that it's connected. Um, nothing's leaking, it's not loose, the medication's actually going into the patient and label that line if it's not already labeled. And by labeling it, I mean put the name of the drug on the line. Yes, the name of the drug will scroll across the screen of your pump channel, but I don't have time to figure that out when I've got eight channels running to, no, I don't have time for that and you don't either. So um, just make it super safe. A lot of hospitals are now requiring all lines to be labeled. Even if they don't, I label. So label your line with some masking tape if you've got it and a Sharpie. You write on your masking tape with the Sharpie and then Wrap that um, and make a little flag out of it. Wrap that above the Y site. So the Y site closest to the patient, and by Y site, I mean that little port that comes off where you could connect another IV line or add um, a syringe to do an IV push medication. Label it there because that's where people will be looking to connect another IV line or put in a flush medication. So, for instance, if it's normal saline, label it normal saline so that when I see normal saline running through the line and let's say I've got to give a medication, I know that I'm going to put it there versus the line that's labeled insulin, okay? So knowing where you can flush things is important. So you want to check that your lines are labeled and if they're not, label them. And then a lot of times you will have lines running, um, 
concurrently. Well, let's let's not talk about that yet. Let's talk about piggyback medications. So if you've got um, piggyback medications, and when I say piggyback medications, if you don't know what that means, that means that I'm going to piggyback something like an intermittent med, like an antibiotic, and it piggybacks onto a maintenance fluid like the normal saline. Um, I don't know why it's called a piggyback. I guess just because it medication you're piggybacking will infuse, the main one will pause, the piggyback one will infuse, and then when it's done, the main one automatically takes over. Okay, does that make sense? So it's called a piggyback. So you want to make sure that you're labeling um, piggyback lines as well, because those could have all kinds of things in them. Let's say that you're you've got normal saline running with the piggyback of clindamycin. But your patient also needs an IV push of famotidine. I have no idea if those medications are compatible, but let's say that they're not, just in case. And somebody came into your room because you went on break and they saw that your famotidine was due. And they're like, oh, I'll give the famotidine. Well, if they go over to your patient and they just see normal saline and they don't do the whole trace of everything, they could potentially be flushing or IV pushing that famotidine in with not normal saline, but the clindamycin. And let's say they're not compatible. That could be really bad. So what I like to do is I have my things labeled NS with IVP, IV piggyback or IVPB, so that people can be like, oh, I should look and make sure there's not a piggyback running with this while I flush this other medication in. So again, bulletproofing, you guys. You're making you're making it really hard for a mistake to happen is what I'm trying to say with all of this. Okay, so then the other thing with your IV lines, especially in the critical care setting, is IV compatibility. So those ports, I keep calling them Y sites, and you might not know what I mean by a Y site. But an IV line will have a little port. It's probably about six to eight inches away from the end of the um, the tubing, the IV tubing. And that's where you could attach another um, IV tubing if you wanted to. And we call that Y site or Y siting something in or they're Y sided together um, because it kind of makes the shape like a Y and that's why it's called a Y site. So you can look um, at your IV compatibility because you'll be able to run certain things together through um, those Y sites, okay? So you will have a resource on your computer um, through your, you know, whatever pharmacology app your facility uses and determine the IV compatibility of certain medications. And if your patient's on a whole bunch of stuff and you've only got um, three IV sites or three lumens in a central catheter, you're going to have to get um, some things Y-sided together. So what I like to do when I'm bulletproofing my patient is I will actually print out the compatibility report and tape that somewhere, you know, on the wow or near the IV pumps or something. And I'll make sure that everything is clearly labeled. So if I've got three lumens or three IVs, I might label them A, B, and C, and then list out what's going through each one. So A could be propofol, norepinephrine, and fentanyl. So those are all Y-sided together, and I think they're all compatible. You'd have to check, but I'm 90% sure they're all compatible. And then on the B site, you know, which things are running through that? And on the C site, which things are running through that? So just checking your IV compatibilities just because you come on shift 
and a patient has stuff Y-sided together, does that mean the nurse checked? Does not mean the nurse checked. You need to check. So if you see things Y-sided together, you need to real quickly check and make sure they are compatible. I cannot count how many times um, I've checked and there hasn't not going to say something's been incompatible, but there's no data that it is. And to me, and that's not a safety risk I'm willing to take. So um, checking your Y-site compatibility and then getting that all dialed in on your patients is another key way that you're going to bulletproof their safety. Um, another thing about your IVs, if it's towards the end of your shift and your patient has, let's say they're on some medications that are critical to sustaining life, for instance, like a vasoactive medication or an inotrope like dobutamine, and you don't want that medication to run dry, right? I had a patient once where I came on shift, he was a really sick guy, and ugh, I was frustrated understandably so, that um, one of my medications was almost empty, and it was one of those that the pharmacy had to mix up. So I was in a panic to try to get my med from the pharmacy before it ran out because this guy absolutely needed it. Thankfully, I got it, but it was close. And then, so that was happening. And then at the same time, one of his vasoactives ran completely dry. And when your vasoactive runs completely dry, you can't just stick another um, IV uh, bag on your tubing because it's dry. Um, you've got a big bunch of air in that line, so you can't use that line. You're going to have to reprime that IV tubing. And when you are fighting really bad hypotension on a patient who is uh, dependent on that vasoactive medication like norepinephrine, for instance, that's a what I call a puckering moment um, where, yeah, you're going to be, you're, it's going to be tense. So I had a patient where like two or three things ran dry in the first half hour to hour that I was there. And I was livid would probably be a pretty good word to describe how I felt because it was avoidable. The nurse before me could have gotten things set up for a little bit more uh, patient success there. Could have reached out to pharmacy to request that um, special drug that had to be mixed, get them started making it, and then um, checked the levels of the other two medications so that they wouldn't be running out right at the beginning of the shift when things are really busy and you're still getting a report and doing your assessments on your patients. So as you get towards the end of your shift, you're going to be checking your um, medications and your IV fluids. And if they're close to running out, and it's a medication, you know, you're obviously not going to go get a narcotic and leave it hanging and waiting for it to the other one to run dry. But if it's something like your fluids or whatever, get a fresh bag ready for the next shift. Set the next shift up for success. You're setting your patient up for success. If you see that the milrinone is going to run out in an hour because you know exactly at what rate it's running, and maybe it's something you have to get from the pharmacy, maybe your Pixis doesn't carry it, then you need to reach out to the pharmacy well in advance so that they know to make it and bring it up or whatever the medication is. So making sure that critical things aren't going to run out early in the shift of your friend is a great way to help bulletproof your patient and their safety. Because if those drugs run out, it's it's tense, it's scary for you, it's not good for the patient. You want to have a seamless transition when you get to the end of one bag of 
norepinephrine, for instance, and then hanging the new one. So setting your patient and your your coworker on the next shift up for success goes a long way for bulletproofing your patient. Okay, so let's say we've got a patient um, with, you want to be able to track their I's and O's, their ins and outs. So let's say your patient has multiple suction canisters. Maybe they've got one for their um, OG tube, and then there's another one that's for their um, chest tube setup, and there's another one for their ET tube and all this suction stuff that comes with that. So I like to label the suction canisters so the people know what is going where so that it's just easy for them to know, okay, that's the one that's hooked up to the OG tube. We're decompressing his bowel. Okay. And then that's the one that we're using for the chest tube suction. And then that's the one that we're using for the um, ET tube. Just label things, make everything super clear, super, super easy. Um, And then that way, when you're doing your eyes and nose, it's really easy to know what's from where, right? You know that that's the OG tube suction, whatever, bile, whatever it is. And then the other one was from the ET tube. So you can keep track of your eyes and nose really well. And then if your patient is, um, you're tracking eyes and nose, just a little tip for your patient. A lot of patients will be on fluid restrictions. And, you know, this might be your patient who's in renal failure or has congestive heart failure and can't take in a lot of fluids. And it can be hard to keep track, especially if they're, you know, drinking themselves, like having sips of water. So one of the things that I like to do if they are on a fluid restriction is um, sometimes I'll get paper cups from the nourishment room and figure out how many full cups of water he can have in a 24-hour period and then label them. Let's say I, you know, I figure out that he can have four full cups of water in a 24-hour period. So label them, number one of four, number two of four, and so on and so on. And then that keeps the patient aware of how much water because they'll have to kind of ration their water drinking throughout the day. And then the nurse won't get, you won't get, and your friend on the next shift won't get Um, confused about how much is available on their water restriction. I would say that patients tend to drink most of their water when they're on restriction during the day. So you can probably have like two thirds of it during the day and about a third of it at night. Or you can talk to the patient about how they want to divvy it up. They may be used to this and know how they want to allocate their water. So um, that's just a quick tip on keeping tracks of, of I's and O's on patients, especially when it's those critical I's and O's and they're on a restriction. The other thing that I like to do, especially for my patients for whom I'm watching their urine output really, really, really closely, is um, just the best thing to probably do is make it your habit to fully empty the Foley every two hours. You can, uh, there's urometers that we use in the critical care setting. And if you've taken your elimination lab or you've been in the hospital, you know that there's a couple different kinds of Foley uh, collection bags. One is just the plastic bag and one is the plastic bag with this hard plastic um, container hanging off the front of it. That hard plastic container is called a urometer and it's used more in the critical care setting so you can get really accurate eyes and O's. And a lot of times you might just be, um, looking at your um, urine output number on that, and then you tip that urometer into the main Foley bag. Um, If you're really doing really accurate eyes and nose, I would go a step further and just 
empty the whole thing every two hours or every hour if that's how um, you're keeping track of your eyes and nose on that. So that there's absolutely no question about what the patient's eyes and nose are. And some patients will be on such, such strict eyes and nose that you need to be that exact. So again, you're just bulletproofing your patient, making everything super, super clear. Okay, so um, another thing that I like to do is if you are titrating things to a protocol, like for instance, an insulin infusion based off what their blood sugar is, I like to just print that protocol out and tape it right there on or keep it right there on the computer. And um, that just makes it easy. You don't have to then open up another screen on your computer and then you're, you know, you're not on your MAR anymore. You're looking at something else and then it's easy to get distracted. And then what if you forgot to chart on your MAR? So I like to just print it out and keep it right there. Um, Another thing just before um, you might not encounter this until you're working more in a critical care setting, but with things like an insulin drip, you are titrating based on um, different levels. So there's actually like up to 12 or 13 different mini protocols within the one. So what you want to make sure that you've charted is what level you're titrating on. So if your patient's at level one, make sure that's in the MAR somewhere so that when someone else comes in to take your blood sugar and is going to titrate your insulin based off that, they know to titrate based off the level one instructions and not, you know, like the level six instructions, which would give the patient way too much insulin. So just make sure you're doing thorough charting around things like that. Okay, what else can I tell you? Okay, things like, um, I like to use a lot of timers in my practice to remember to do things at certain times. And I also am a big fan of post-it notes. So let's say, for instance, that I've got um, the Foley clamped because I need a urine sample that I can send to the lab for a urinalysis. So if the patient has a Foley catheter, how we do that is we clamp the Foley for like 20 minutes, half an hour, and then get our sample. Well, guess what? Super easy to get distracted and forget to unclamp that Foley. And what if I spaced on it completely and then it was five hours later? I mean, hopefully it wouldn't be, but let's just say it was. Five hours later and the patient now has um, urine flowing um you know, backing up into their kidneys. That's not going to be good. And it's also going to cause the patient a lot of discomfort. So if I've done something like clamp a Foley, um, I'll write myself a post-it note and stick it on the computer. And then I'll also set a timer on my Apple Watch for that half an hour. And then when it goes off, I, I think, oh, I'm supposed to be doing something right now. What is it? And then sometimes I'll remember, but sometimes I'll see the note and go, oh yeah, I got to go unclamp that fully and get that urine sample. So especially if it's change of shift, you want to make sure that if you are doing something like that, like you've clamped a Foley, or let's say that you are instilling TPA in a central line, you will, uh, most hospital protocols will be that you put the TPA in the line and then you let it sit for a certain amount of time. So you want to make sure that things like that are labeled. And I like to leave a little post-it note for my next nurse friend that's coming on so that they know, okay, I've got TPA to deal with in that line, or I've got a Foley to unclamp and a lab to draw from that. So again, just super clear communication, super clear labeling, things like that, really important. Setting timers on your phone or your Apple Watch or whatever if you have something like that for um, 
unclamping the Foley or drawing a potassium level two hours after the other one ended, um, after the potassium infusion ended, just whatever it is, using your resources and things like that to help you stay on um, task and get things done in um, an efficient way when they need to be done for the patient. So um, again, those are kind of the highlights for the ways I like to bulletproof my patient. Of course, the end-all, be-all way at the very end is giving a thorough bedside um, end-of-shift report to my oncoming nurse and doing that bedside quick assessment of the patient together. Um, not taking, you know, not doing the full head-to-toe assessment, but looking at the lines, et cetera, looking at the drains, looking at dressings. If they are a neuro patient, doing that neuro exam together. All those things that are really, they're for the patient's safety and they're for your safety and the nurse that's coming after you for their safety. So those are my tips for bulletproofing your patient. I will include a little checklist because I think you guys like checklists. So I'm going to include a checklist for this um, and you can use what's applicable. Obviously, not every patient's going to have a chest tube or whatever, but you can just kind of look at that and remember things to be thinking about for when you are working in an environment and you really just want to dial in your practice and bulletproof your patient, bulletproof their safety as well as your own. Okay, you guys, so that is it for today. Thank you so much for spending your very precious, valuable free time with me. I appreciate it so much. And next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about dialysis. So some basics about dialysis that um, you need to know whether you're working on the floor or um, in a critical care setting. So I will see you back then and have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 